Ten Commandments. And uh, before we look at the seventh commandment today, I want to remind you once again uh, that these commandments are not given to restrict you, but they are given to liberate you. I want to remind you again that these commandments are not given by an oppressive God, but they are given by a saving God who has saved you and who wants to see you stay free. This is the reason why we read uh, verses 1 and 2 always. Uh, These verses remind us that God has set us free, and these commandments are given to us so that we can remain free. And so, with that in mind, let's turn our attention to uh, the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, Today, what I'll do for uh, today's message is I'll uh, just break it down into two parts. First, I'll define what adultery is, and then I will apply it into uh, your lives. So first, uh, what is adultery? Now, this might seem like a real simple question, but there's actually a lot of debate as to how to define what adultery is. I'm not sure if you know, but currently, uh, adultery is actually a crime in 21 states in America. But this crime is rarely prosecuted because states are still struggling to, as to how to actually define it. And so, we need to ask the question, What is adultery, or how does the Bible define adultery? Well, the Bible, in defining adultery, actually gives it to us in three phases. It it tells us in three phases, okay? So first, it introduces this, this idea of adultery in the Old Testament. And here is how the Old Testament uh, identifies or defines adultery. In the Old Testament, adultery is sexual intercourse between a married or engaged woman and and any other man who is not her husband. This is how the Old Testament defines it. So, um, for an act to be legally considered adultery, there has to be sexual intercourse involved, and the woman involved has to either be married or engaged. So, if, for instance, a married man had sexual relations with an unmarried woman, that would not be considered adultery. Now, before you jump to any conclusions with this definition, you know, before you start saying, hey, you know, I think this is really unfair, uh, the Bible is oppressive to women, I want you to know just a few things, okay? First, know that when this act is committed, when adultery is committed, both the woman and the male, whatever their status may be, if the woman is married and she commits adultery with a man who is not her husband, Both parties faced the same punishment. They were equally punished, and that punishment was death. Also, I want you to know, on the other hand, if a married man uh, became intimate with an unmarried woman, though that wasn't considered adultery, it was a crime, and there was a punishment. And that punishment is, or that punishment was, he had to marry that woman. He had to, in other words, be fully responsible for her. 
And according to scripture, he could not divorce her down the line. Now, again, I know some of you might be thinking, well, this sounds unfair or unbalanced. But if you actually think about it, there's a lot of wisdom and justice behind this legal system. See, the reason why they couldn't put to death the married man in this kind of a scenario was because if he were to die, then his wife, whom he leaves, would be left alone. And in the social economic world of the Old Testament, the widow would not have means to survive on her own. Also, another thing that you should know, that in the ancient Near East, once a woman lost her virginity, she was no longer considered by society to be a viable bride. See, and this is why the law, or this is why the law, um, the punishment according to the law is that if a married man has intimate relations with an unmarried woman, he has to now take responsibility. He has to take her in to be his wife. And so this law that we find in the Old Testament was made to protect both the wife and the unmarried woman. Okay. So this, is, this isn't just what uh, adultery is in the Old Testament. It is defined clearly as sexual intercourse between a married or engaged woman and another male. And this was punishable by death. Now, about 1,500 years later, Jesus arrives onto the scene. He arrives onto the scene, and in his first major sermon, what Jesus does is he reinterprets this command. He gives us phase two of this definition. Now, I want you to know that Jesus isn't just any other teacher. He's actually the one who gave the law. He's the one who had written the law. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intention has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, in the Old Testament, right, if you remember, adultery was sexual intercourse, and there had to be a married or betrothed woman. According to now Jesus, what is adultery? Well, it's not just the act uh, it's not just sexual intercourse, but he broadens it to include now lustful intention, and he broadens it even further to include any person. So any male and any female. That's adultery. Now, what Jesus does is he takes the seventh commandment that was de clearly defined and restricted as a sexual act and he deepens it, and he gets to really the heart of it. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, this is a little too radical. I mean, how can lustful intention be considered adultery? But I want you for a moment to, to not think about this command legally, but I want you to think about it personally. For those of you in a marital relation, or those of you intending on getting married, at what point would you say your partner has crossed the line? What is the line that you draw? 
What if he or she goes on a date with someone? Would you consider that to be crossing the line, adultery? What about romantic texting? Clearly there's intention involved and there's romantic texting going on. Is that adultery? What about pornography? If your spouse is engaged in pornography, is that adultery for you? What about there's no texting, there's no meeting, there's no face-to-face, but what if your partner was meditating upon a certain individual, kept thinking about her or kept thinking about him? Maybe, you know, they, they know each other through work. Maybe it's an old, um, you know, high school or college friend. And what if your spouse was meditating upon that person, was intentionally thinking over and over about that person? Would that be violating marriage vows? You know, a little over 10 years ago, there was an article in The Atlantic uh, by Ross Thought, and it actually uh, gained some national traction. And in this article, uh, Ross Thought argued that currently as we speak, the line between what we consider just fantasy and infidelity is not as clear as we think it is. And he argues, because we live in a digital age, this line has become all the more confused and all the more blurred. Ross says this, because of the internet, what what industries do is through the internet, they, they profit heavily whenever they can take something that's fantasy and make it as real as possible. And he says that happened in the porn industry. When they take something that was just fantasy and they make it as real as possible. And Ross Thought says, Pornography is much closer to adultery than most users would like to admit. You see, I don't think Jesus in Matthew 5, I don't think he's being overly pious here. Jesus is not some Puritan. He's not some prude who is removed from society, being overly protective and extremely cautious. No, I think Jesus is verbalizing what we all know to be true deep down inside, that adultery is not just the physical act, but it's a heart issue. You know, I think we all like to, in society, define adultery as strictly sexual intercourse, just so we can avoid the grave. We like to define it just as sexual intercourse, just so we have more slack and so that we all can be in the clear. But Jesus, he is pinpointing something crucial here. That adultery begins in the heart. It's a heart issue. See, he's taking away this this false dichotomy, this, this false dualism between body and spirit. Because you see, Back then, people thought, well, it doesn't matter, you know, what comes out of my body, what goes in my body is most important. So as long as I can keep my body clean, that's fine. And Jesus is saying, no, out of the impurity of the heart comes all of this evil. And so Jesus here, he's he's deepening our understanding of what adultery is. And he's, he's targeting our hearts and saying, listen, it's beginning there. 
And so what happens? This is phase two. Phase three is this. The New Testament writers, with this now new revelation, with this new expression of adultery, the New Testament writers, what they do is they solidify the idea of adultery. Here's what um, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1. Okay. Uh, if you look at 1 Timothy 1, this is interesting because Paul says this. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. And starting from uh, the second paragraph on, he, he's actually um, rewriting, he's summarizing uh, the second half of the Ten Commandments, right? For those who strike their fathers and mothers, that's the fifth commandment. For murderers, that's the sixth commandment. The sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, that's the seventh commandment. And slavers, so those who steal from others, that's the eighth commandment. Liars and perjurers, that's the ninth commandment. So what Paul is doing here is uh, he is actually re rewriting the second half of the Ten Commandments, and he's summarizing it. And how does he summarize the seventh commandment? He uses this blanket term, sexual immorality, a word that in the Greek is pornos, which we get the word pornography. And this is a word that covers all sorts of sexual uh, misconduct or unlawful sexual behavior. It includes prostitution, it includes unchastity, it includes fornication, it includes sex before marriage, it includes pornography, it includes bestiality, it includes homosexuality, it includes moral infidelity, and of course it covers lust of the heart. Paul, as he understands now the seventh commandment in light of Jesus, he's saying, listen, it's not just sexual intercourse between a married woman and some other man, but he's saying, listen, the seventh commandment now, as we should understand it, is, covers everything, covers all of these things. Now, I would suspect that a good number of people here, a good percentage of the people here came in this morning for those of you keeping track, you probably knew, well, today we're going through the seventh commandment, and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm clear of this. I'm good on this. But once again, through Jesus and through Scripture, we understand that we are deeply adulterous people, that if we really examine our hearts, that there is no one who is righteous before this command, and that once again we do need grace. So this is how the scriptures understand what adultery is. Now, how does it apply to us? How does it apply to us? Well, let me first, uh, let me address um, different groups at a time. So let me first address the married couples. The point of the seventh commandment is not just to prevent adultery, okay? The point of the seventh commandment is not just to keep you from engaging with someone else who is not your spouse, but positively, the goal of the seventh commandment is to rekindle your love for your spouse. What the seventh commandment ought to do is it, it ought to recommit you to the covenant that you've made with your spouse. You know, Proverbs 5 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. 
And it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it talks about adultery. The beginning part of Proverbs 5 talks about, uh, it is talking to this young fellow who, um, he's warning this young fellow to stay away from the seductress mistress. He says, hey, be careful because she's calling out to you. She's calling out to you. She will destroy your home. She will destroy your life. Be careful not to go near her. And you know what uh, the author of Proverbs says? He says this. After he's saying, hey, be careful. Don't fall into adultery. He tells the person this. Drink water from your own cistern. Drink water flowing from your own well. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. And then he says this. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight to be intoxicated always in her love. This is what the wisdom writer is saying. If you want to avoid adultery, this is what you should do. You should be intoxicated with your wife. You should be madly in love with your wife. And I love the way he says this. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. You know, he doesn't say rejoice in your wife who is young. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth, the wife whom you married years ago. Remember her. You see, the the author, he's not naive. He understands that time passes. And as time passes, people get older. And dare I say, as people get older, they become less attractive. But the wisdom writer here is instructing us. As time goes on, remember the wife of your youth. Remember her. He's instructing the men in particular. Remember the wife whom you married. You know, there's a uh, pastor by the name of Ray Ortland. He's a, he's a very old and seasoned pastor who uh, does ministry out in Nashville. And he uh, writes a letter to, to men uh, regarding reflecting upon Proverbs 5. And he writes this. Let me read part of the letter for you. He says this. By now, time has gone by, maybe a lot of time. But nothing important has changed. She is still that girl who gave herself to you on your wedding day. She put herself in your arms. She is still that girl who went with you into that hotel room on your wedding night. You locked the door and she trusted you. She undressed for you. She gave herself to you. She could not have been more vulnerable. She could not have been more honoring toward you. She could not have been more vulnerable and trusting. Remember that. Dwell on that. Marvel at that. Remember how we used to laugh and have fun because you so liked each other? You can have that again. Go back there. Yes, so much in life has changed. 
You both have seen trouble and sorrow, maybe more than you ever dreamed you would, but you still have her, and she counts for more than all the troubles in the world. Look at her. Look closely. Notice how much of her has not changed. Dwell on that. Think of her faithfulness to you through the years, despite your weaknesses and your failings. Through the many hardships, all by the grace of God, meditate on the divine mercy she represents to you. Let your heart melt again and rejoice in God in her. And he writes, your marriage is not a prison. You have not received a death sentence except to your selfishness. Your marriage can be a God-given source of rejoicing. How wonderful that release from shallow self is a pathway into ever deeper joy with her as long as you both shall live. You see, once again, the point of the seventh commandment is not just to, to keep you strapped down so that you could, you know, so that you won't engage in no one else, but the point of the seventh commandment positively is to once again rekindle your love for your spouse. You know, in a Greek mythology, um, there are these sea creatures called uh, the sirens. And the sirens were these sea creatures who had beautiful female faces and beautiful voices. And what these sea creatures would do is they would sit on the rocks, uh, and they would sit on rocks and cliffs on the ocean, and as uh, boats would pass by, what, what the sirens would do is they would sing to them in their lovely, lovely voice. They would seduce them with their singing. Now, as sailors would go by, they would hear the voices of siren, and they would become enchanted by them, and they would go towards them, and they would crash their boats into the rocks. According to Greek mythology, there were only two people who had successfully passed through the sirens. One is a man by the name of Odysseus, uh, that's in Homer's Odyssey. Now, what Odysseus did was, before he passed the sirens, he asked all of his sailors, he says, I want you to tie me down to the boat. Tie me down, so that as we pass by and as we hear the sounds, I won't be able to steer the boat towards them. So that's what he did. He was tied down. All the other sailors, they stuffed their ears with uh, beeswax so they couldn't hear the voices. And they were all just there, just trying to endure that moment. And even as Odysseus was passing by, he was begging the sailors to let him go. Let me go, let me go, so I can go towards the sirens. That was Odysseus. But the other man who actually passed by safely was a man by the name of Orpheus. Orpheus, what he did was, when his boat passed by, and when he heard the voices, the beautiful voices of the sirens, he actually took out an instrument. He was a skilled musician. He took out a lyre, and he started to play it. And what he did was, he played a tune, a song that was more beautiful than that of the sirens. You see, adultery, we avoid adultery not by strapping yourself down. You avoid adultery not by strapping your spouse down. 
but you avoid adultery by becoming intoxicated with your spouse's love. So, positively, as we think about this commandment once again, there are some newlyweds here, and there are some people who've been married uh, two decades. But the command, I think, is the same for all of us. Remember the wife of your youth. Remember the woman whom you married. Now, towards singles. Now, I know, I think some of you might be thinking, well, this isn't really relevant to me that it doesn't concern me, but actually it does. If you are single and you are desiring to get married later on, you have to trust and believe that God will bring you and your future spouse together. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but Scripture is quite clear that the hand of God is actually upon relationships. This is what Jesus himself says in Mark 10. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. See, Jesus himself is acknowledging, he is teaching us that it's God who joins two people together. Now, if this is the case, Singles, if this is the case and you believe it, please do not give your heart and your body away to someone who is not your spouse. Be careful, singles, not to adulterate yourself to someone who is not going to promise him or herself to you forever. You know, if you really want to abide by this word, of not committing adultery. It applies even now in your singlehood because you will have a spouse down the line. And that person that you are committing, potentially committing adultery with, that person too will have a spouse down the line. And so singles, this command also applies to you in your singlehood. You know, there was a book in 1997, I believe, um, written by a man, a pastor named Joshua Harris. And uh, this book was actually, uh, during the 90s, it was, it was one of the most popular books among Christians. It was entitled, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And uh, for those of you, you know, who grew up during that time, you probably have read that book. It was so influential. Now, About a decade later, there was so much backlash against that book that people started to trash that book. And people, you know, spoke so negatively about the book. And and the pendulum swung so far over that whatever that uh, that book uh, proposed, all those ideas were just simply rejected and thrown away. But I think there has to be a, a renaissance of sort. I think that book has to come back in vogue because we've gone so far the other way. But anyway, that, in that book, Joshua Harris, he, um, he's trying to persuade the readers, especially Christians, to not consider dating until they're ready to get married. Now, I know it might sound unrealistic. I know it might sound uh, very uh, archaic and ultra-conservative. But I think there is a real, there's a point to that. 
You know, uh, Joshua Harris, he starts the book off with this antidote. He um, tells the story of this, of this girl that uh, came to his office once, telling uh, him about a dream that she had. Uh, her name was Anna, and she was soon about to get married. Now, before her wedding, uh, she had a dream, and in this dream, it was her wedding day, and she was you know, walking down the aisle. It was a beautiful, beautiful wedding. And joy was surging within her, and the moment that she had long been waiting was, had finally arrived, and they turned to each other, and they were about to say their vows. But as they were about to say their vows, uh, a girl stood up in the middle of the congregation, and she walked quietly to the altar, and she took the groom's hand. As they were saying their vows, another girl got up. She walked up to the altar, and she stood behind that man. Soon, a chain of six girls stood behind them. Now, this girl, Anna, she didn't know what was going on, and she asked, is this some kind of joke? What's going on? And in her dream, her, her future spouse said, I'm sorry, Anna. And she started to stare at the floor. So Anna asks, who are these girls? And then David replies, they're girls from my past. And he answers very sadly. He says, Anna, they don't mean anything, anything to me now, but in the past, I've given them parts of my heart. She asks, I thought your heart was mine. And he says, it is. Everything that's left is now yours. Anna wakes up and she starts crying. And, she th and, and this, this sickening thought comes upon her and she says, she starts to think, how many men can line up next to me on my wedding day? And the author, in fact, says the same thing. He says, you know, when I heard that story, I thought the exact same thing. That on my wedding day, how many people could actually stand up next to me and say the exact same thing? That they can say, hey, Joshua, those were some pretty lofty promises you made at the altar today. And I hope you're better at keeping promises now than you were, than you, than you were when I knew you. My, don't you look nice in that tuxedo? And what a beautiful bride. Does she know about me? Have you told her all the sweet things you used to whisper in my ear? Now, the reason why there was so much backlash against this book was because so many people thought, you know, this is so unrealistic. We make mistakes in life, and it, it, you know, people thought Joshua Harris was just idealizing marriage and relationships. But I think there is a point here. I think there is something that we need to acknowledge and understand. That in our singleness and in our relationships, what we are doing is we are giving away our hearts. We are giving away ourselves to people who might not be our spouse. And so singles, there is a way that you can be faithful to your future spouse. Finally, if you are single and you are planning on remaining single, not because it's convenient, but because you have the gift of celibacy, please know why God has called you to be single. God has called you to be single so that you can be a spouse unto him. 
This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 34. He says this. He's talking to singles, and he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Right? Isn't that such a great, I want you to be free from anxiety, singles. And he says this. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man, he is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Now, amen to this, okay? This is true. And he says, the married man, his interests are divided. But the unmarried or the betrothed woman, she is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So according to Scripture, singleness is a gift that God gives so that you can be all the more connected to him, so that you can be all the more concerned about his affairs, so that you can be all the more committed to his body, the church. So I addressed married people and I addressed singles. Let me just conclude by addressing both. The broken. Whether you're married or you're single, I think this is a command that we all wrestle to keep. And while we can classify people by marital status, the truth is we are all the same. We are sinners who are sexually broken, who deeply struggle with sexual sins, and we are all together in need of even deeper grace. So let me, let me address you finally, not by exhorting you, but by simply telling you a true story. Let me tell you a true story. One day, Jesus, early in the morning, he was at the temple teaching. And all of a sudden, the scribes and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they bring to Jesus a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. She wasn't just accused of adultery. She was caught in the act. So they bring her before Jesus. And they say, what should we do? What should we do? Because according to the law, this woman should be stoned. What Jesus does is he bends down and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. And they're saying, what should we do? What should we do? And as Jesus is writing, bending over, writing on the floor, he says this, let the person who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. The Bible tells us, one by one, people start to leave. It's, it says, from the older one, they start to go. And they all leave, and then after a while, it's only Jesus and this woman. And Jesus looks up at this woman, and he says, where is everyone? And she says, no one's here. He asks, has no one condemned you? And she says, no. And this is what Jesus says. Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. To the sexually broken, to the woman who was actually caught in the act of adultery. We don't know her story. We don't know her background. We don't know why she was in this act. But to this woman, Jesus, the lawgiver himself, says, I do not condemn you. 
Now, I, I want you to not, not to be confused. Jesus, he's not letting this woman go scot-free. He's not excusing sin. But the reason why Jesus doesn't condemn her, because he knows that very soon he himself will be condemned by God for her sins and for our sins. And so he says, go, leave your life of sin. I do not condemn you. See, it's not that Jesus did not take sin seriously, but it's because Jesus, he knew that his sacrifice was going to be sufficient. He says, go, I do not condemn you. You know, many believe that this woman was one of the few women who were at the foot of the cross when Jesus was being crucified. There were only a handful of people there, and this woman was likely there. Because this woman understood that when she saw that Jesus was crucified, she understood that it was actually her. She was the one who was supposed to experience death. And she knew that the only righteous one who did not deserve that was Jesus. But she knew and understood what he was doing. So she was there at the cross. You know, those who have committed adultery, statistics say that a size of a church of this size, there's likely someone who has or those in the act of committing adultery, or those who have been victims of adultery and feel guilty, those contemplating adultery, or those who feel so broken or crippled because of sexual sins. Scripture reminds us that Jesus does not condemn the one person who has every reason and cause to condemn doesn't. You see, even though Jesus transformed the commandments, even though he upped the ante, he doesn't require the same penalty for transgressing it because he has faced it. And so this morning, would you be encouraged and leave your life of sin? Would you hear once again the words of Jesus? Go. And from now on, sin no more. I do not condemn you. Join me in prayer at this time.